Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast about how our growing ability to engineer biology and re-engineer healthcare is transforming the future. I'm Lauren Richardson, PhD, scientist, and former journal editor. Today, we're rerunning an episode that I truly loved because it explores a question that seems super straightforward, but that on closer examination reveals incredible complexity. And that is, how do we put the patient at the center of the healthcare system? Which almost seems counterintuitive since aren't patients always the center of healthcare? But healthcare is a bit of a strange industry in that it was built with the fundamental goal of serving patients, but in many ways, the patient isn't always the end customer of the system. In fact, the patient and the patient's voice can often be lost or overlooked in the enormous, complex, convoluted business flows between a huge system of providers, in elaborate clinical workflows, in insurance coverage and reimbursements, and in high-level policy debates. So in this episode, A16Z general partner Julie Yu and deal team partner Jay Rugani talk with Frida Lewis-Hall, a physician who was formerly Pfizer's chief patient officer and chief medical officer, and who, among many other roles, was appointed by the Obama administration to the board of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. They discuss what happens when you rethink the entire healthcare system from the patient's point of view from drug development to clinical trials to care delivery, and what tools and new approaches we can use to truly put the patient at the center of the healthcare system. The conversation begins with Frida's origin story on why she wanted to become a physician in the first place. As you thought about where you could have the most impact, what guided you over the course of your career? I have wanted to be a physician since I was six years old. And that really came from being in a household where when I was born, my father's brother, who was a paraplegic at the hands of a polio infection when he was six years old, came to live with us. And so I grew up with someone who needed care in our home 24-7. And the medical team, the system that was taking care of him was remarkable inside our house and outside our house, the brace maker, our primary care physician, the specialist that did a special surgery, the people who took care of him in rehabilitation hospital for a year. And I just wanted to be that, the kind of person that focused on the people who needed the care and that you gave it to them with the most you had all day, every day. It's what I learned in medical school, where we were very patient-focused. And then somehow... When we got to the big wide world of the system of healthcare, it dissipated and we became the owners of the system, the participants of the system. We got focused on ourselves, thinking that that would help us do a better job. So, patient centricity, patient outcomes, being a healer and a helper is really what guided me. I went into practice just out of my residency as a part of the National Health Service Corps, taking care of patients in the area of psychiatry in a health manpower shortage area in the Virgin Islands. So I started in Washington, D.C., taking care of patients with very high need and ended up in the National Health Service Corps taking care of patients who frankly had few others to take care of them. When I came back to the university setting, I wanted to bring that focus on patients, on doing the best to provide the best outcomes for the patients that we were serving. 
How do you know what to do to take the best care of people? The answer to that is you do research. And so did research for a bit and then had an opportunity to go into the pharmaceutical industry. And to be honest, that was not a good thing for my family, my friends, and my colleagues. I mean, literally, real tears were cried at that Thanksgiving. They were like, how can you go to the dark side? This is terrible. But my husband, we've been together since we were 17. He knew my heart. And he said, you know, you've been a healer since I've known you. Does it matter if you do it one patient at a time or a million at a time? And that just was unassailable logic to me. And so off I went into the industry. And that's where I've been since 1994. Help us understand broadly why some industries, some components of the industry lose sight of the patient? Where do they go wrong? Why was there such a negative perception of the pharmaceutical industry? Well, it was simple. Patients, people believed that we were about profits, not about people, and that we put our profits above people. And frankly, some pretty bad things were happening during that period of time or things that were viewed in a negative way were happening at that time. I think we're in a much better place Mm -hmm. today in terms of the work that we do. And it's always troubled me, how can we work so hard and deliver such incredible results with new medicines and new therapies that save and change people's lives? And we're thought so poorly of it. It's really a disconnect for me. And a part of my time in the industry has been to try to figure out what that dynamic is and to think about how we can address it. I'll tell you uh, one of my meltdown moments uh, that I'm not necessarily proud of. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it was a meltdown moment. So I've been going to a physician for about eight years. I go into the office and they hand me a clipboard with like a pen you know, with a little string attached to it to make sure I don't take this pen. And so she hands me the clipboard, which is an empty page. And I go, you know what? I said, what is this? She said, well, just make sure you, you know, fill in your name and your... I said, I've been for eight years. Y'all have seen all kinds of parts of me. And you want me to write my name and address down? I said, you know, I'm not doing that. So she didn't say anything. She just kept holding the clipboard up. And I did. I got really exercised about this. I was like, you know, I don't understand... Well, I've been coming here, and you act like you've never met me before, and that I can buy four things on Amazon, and they know what size I am, my favorite color, my style, and the fact that my grandson likes Power Rangers, Dino Charge Power Rangers, not Ninja Steel Power Rangers, and you don't even know my name. So she didn't never said a word, though, (laughs) held the clipboard up. I looked around, you know, all people cheering or looking embarrassed for me in the waiting area, you know, or a combination thereof. And I said, oh, so take it and sit right there and fill it. I mean, you know, what am I supposed to do? I I did it because I needed the care. But this is what we do to people in the healthcare system. And I think that we need to, somebody should have asked me whether or not I would have preferred to come into the office. You knew I was coming. You pulled my record. You know my name. You asked me if all the information is still correct and then had me sit down somewhere. But not the way that you did it. And so I think that we have an opportunity to understand how people want to be served and how they've learned to be served in other places. You know, what happens to you on your groceries, on the things that you buy, your banking? People have been retrained to have very different expectations, few of which mm-hmm. we are meeting in the healthcare delivery mm-hmm. system. And I think we really have an opportunity to up our game. 
And I think one area that notion of patient centricity can really change is the actual care delivery space itself and just the mindset of how we think about what the solutions might look like. So can you speak a little bit to that, Frida, in terms of what approach you've taken there on kind of that last mile of care delivery and what role the patient can now play there? So there are two things I always get in trouble for for saying when it comes to healthcare delivery. I have a friend who says to me, every time I say, well, you know, the healthcare system, she says, why do you keep saying that? And I said, well, why shouldn't I? And she said, because we ain't healthy. Nobody cares and it sure ain't no system. (laughs) And um, I I say, I disagree with the middle part because I think a lot of people care. But you can't disagree with the first part. I mean, we're just not healthy and it sure ain't no system. And one of the insights is patients don't want to have things done to them. They want things done with them. I think that we have an opportunity to really begin to leverage what we know about systems dynamics and to ask, you know, what do you want? The challenges in our, quote, healthcare system are that we have technology that is advancing beyond our capability to actually use it. So we have Star Wars Medicine's Flintstones healthcare system. So what are we going to do with gene therapy? And, um, you know, all of these things are confusing us. They're thwarting us. They're making it difficult. Access is discordant. We just, it's a lot. And so I think we are going to have to make some changes fundamentally around, you know, who are you actually serving? Are you, who are you serving in the system? What outcomes are you looking for? What outcomes are they looking for? What do they want to uh, get them comfortable? I think we're beginning to ask and answer those questions. There are companies that are cropping up that are beginning to show us that if you do these simple things, you can engage patients in their health care. For example, don't make them wait forever to get in to see you for X or Y or Z. Be available to them virtually. What if you go to them instead of making somebody come to you? What if you provide a continuity in a system that actually uh, makes a difference? What if you engage them in social environments that they're doing other things in that they can now attend to their health and wellness in? Does that get you to a better place? And so engaging patients, partnering with them, collaborating with them, I think has started to really change the perception of the industry and our outcomes. I feel that we're right in the crosshairs of change that will come as a result of that. In some ways, I always think of drugs and therapies as the most productized form of healthcare and things that actually work, right? Like the, you can pop a pill, it can make you better, it can cure disease, et cetera, relative to you know healthcare services, which have required so much behavioral change to actually have an impact. And yet there's still this paradox about that sort of um, that negative perception. How much of that perception is also shared by physicians? You know, I was, physicians are people too. <laughs> and so are affected by many of the same experiences that we as patients or as family members or caregivers experience. And so if you think about the drug discovery, development, and delivery systems, they really are not very interactive from a historical perspective. We depend on scientists and their deep expertise and their discoveries to help us think about, you know, what is disease and how can we get a better outcome for patients. And what would be more convenient for a caregiver? What would be best for a physician or healthcare provider? So we sit as experts, think about what would be good 
for the various people that we serve in this system. And then we go off and do our work. Mm-hmm. And really HIV, the HIV access and advocacy community was one of the first communities that said, I'm sorry, do you want to talk to us first mm-hmm. before you make all these big, costly, time-consuming decisions? Mm-hmm. And then when we said, yeah, yeah, they were like, um, no, I'm sorry. I meant ask me because I want to tell you. And so we started to get a glimpse into the need for patients, caregivers, and people who care for them to give us insights on what they want and what they need to be better. And then we apply our expertise on top of that. It becomes a dialogue. And we're getting better and better at that over time. Patients with rare diseases, the advocacy organizations and institutions that support and serve them have become expert, not just by saying, please, we need a cure, but by understanding the steps at finding a cure and then providing help, support, information, and now even in some cases, you know, specific interactions, recruiting patients, making sure that everybody has their genotype done, knowing what all the treatments are, funding research. And I think that's what I think of as the patient centricity. I'm fascinated by the fact that pharmaceutical companies are now, first of all, bringing in chief patient officers and and really thinking about in somewhat a new relationship, perhaps that didn't exist. We talk a lot about the fact that, you know, pharma companies today have to develop competencies and things like reimbursement, things in care delivery logistics that they didn't have to before at a much earlier phase of of development. But um, in some ways, your role also represents that same paradigm. You know, you need to develop competencies around engaging patients in a different way than you have before. Do you think in the same way about how do you connect better with patients? What kinds of tools and competencies do you need to build to sort of maintain that relationship? Well, yes and yes. So, you know, frankly, I'm not sure that we're very good or have very many tools to interface with patients well. And there are all kinds of questions. So when you say patients, exactly what do you mean? Do you mean the person who actually has the disease? Do you mean someone who's advocating for someone who has the disease? Do you mean an organization that specializes in, you know, so if you think about patient interface, it comes in a lot of different ways. And frankly, I'm not sure that we have the tools to deploy yet or that we deploy them regularly and are comfortable with them. And so there's so much to learn from patients at every phase. When I was in medical school, I was very, um, you know, you get a little full of yourself every now and then. So I'm sitting there with my little white coat on and, you know, talking to a patient. And I had the information about the medicine that I was prescribing in front of me. And so I said, um, you know, well, the chance of you getting this side effect is such and such a percent. And that's relatively low. And the chance of this happening is also, you know, very low about this percentage. And she touched me on my hand. She said, baby, let me just tell you, if it happens to me, it's 100%. And that is the reminder that for all this time I've kept is, you know, understanding what it means to a patient when the things that you expect or don't might happen to them both the benefits and the risks. And how do you understand that? What are the tools to go out into the patient community and understand those things, then bring them back and meaningfully incorporate them? I've had patients, a patient with lupus, for example, who said, you know, y'all are investigating, you know, you talk about endpoints, 
and you're investigating things like this biomarker and that biomarker, let me tell you what you could fix for me. My fatigue. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it hard for me to go to work and to take care of my children. Mm -hmm. You know, focus on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, who would have thought to ask a patient that? Right. Or I had a, a patient, the mother of a patient with muscular dystrophy, and there's a six-minute walk test that's a part of the regulatory framework. And she likes that that doesn't mean anything to me or to my son. He's been in a wheelchair for a year and will probably not be out of one. So I asked her, what would be meaningful to you? And she said, he lives on his iPad. That's how he does his homework, talks to his friends, and entertains himself when he's by himself. Measure whether he is maintaining his speed and accuracy on his iPad. That would mean something to us. So from the very beginning of what you're looking at or looking for in an effect to how you're understanding what a side effect of a medicine does to a patient, all of that patients can tell you and are very willing yeah. to do so. But how do you do that? Is that a survey? Is it a, you know, what, how do you get that information? Let's talk about the development of new medicines, specifically within clinical trials. Over your career, how have you seen the clinical trial process evolve? I am really excited about what technology can deliver in this space. It is incredible to me what you can know about someone simply by observing them through a wearable in their environment, what you can detect, what you can predict. And we're learning more and more about that. And patients are more and more willing to be engaged in that way and to have us know these things about them. So again, we're developing technologies and we're applying it. I'm not sure that we have feedback from patients on how this technology interfaces with them in their environment and especially in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So do I want to have a wearable on 24-7? Do I want to have a technology that's visualizing what I'm doing? Do I want to have somebody following me on my GPS on my phone? And if the answer to that is I'm okay with that, what are the parameters? How should we frame it? And then how do we talk to patients about their consent, their privacy? There are all kinds of very interesting questions that we're asking and answering and that we're evolving now, I think those things have to be involving patients and evolving with patients in order for us to get it right. Mm -hmm. A lot of patients don't want to go on a clinical trial. 3%, 4% in the United States is a relatively small percentage of patients that go on to a clinical trial. And so how do you think about the 96, 97% of patients that are receiving routine care and perhaps do want to contribute their unique story to the broader research community while balancing all the challenges you mentioned around patient privacy, around consent. We've got some progress made, but more to make. And that is making clinical trials patient-friendly. Clinical trials um, are just like our healthcare system. You make, you know, the sick people get up, get dressed, and go somewhere That's right. to sit somewhere and wait for you to do something to them they don't want done. I mean, if you describe that experience, who would raise their hand for that? Right. So the people, to my mind, that are involved in clinical trials are heroes. And I'm so grateful for their willingness to do that. And the question is, can we make this easier? If you talk to patients who are in clinical trials, they do it, but it's burdensome. The other thing is they often do it, you'll hear, not for themselves, but for someone else. I have breast cancer. If my daughter has it, I don't want her to go through what I'm going through. And if I can help by 
you know, coming to the clinic every two weeks and having this done and that done. And I'm doing it and I'm doing it for that reason. So I think we have a chance to make it more friendly. Do patients really have to come that often? Do they really have to have this many interventions or serial imaging or all the things that we do to patients? And is there some kind of balance that if you could change this a little bit would make a big difference for the number of people who would be willing to participate? And by the way, you could apply that same statement to chronic disease management or, you know, things exactly. in the actual clinical uh, setting as that's well. That's right. Yeah. So there are a range of things that you can do. First of all, the thing that's interesting to me is do you need to see the patient every two weeks for a year? Could some of those be virtual visits? Can some of them um, have your questions answered with the use of technology, like a wearable? If you need it at all. And we find ourselves developing protocols in many cases saying, well, in case this happens, we would find this data useful. But we know retrospectively that much of the data that we collect is not used. So the question is, can you focus down on what you really need to subject a patient to or to have a patient participate in and still get the best result in terms of an outcome for the patient and an outcome for a study. So I think that we're doing a lot of work in that space. The other thing is there are millions of patients seen every day, in many cases, for the very diseases that we need to study. Is there a way for us to evolve our healthcare system so that it's also a health information generation system. Why aren't we doing a clinical trial in quotation marks at every visit for every patient that's being seen for disease X? Why can't we use the technology that we have to clarify what patients would fit into our trial, if you would, meet these criteria for inclusion or exclusion? And why can't we just use what we learn about them every day to help further inform us? And I think that is a space that we're working on. We have a few examples of trials that are being done. We're beginning to pull outcomes data in, if you would, and randomize patients within those environments, follow them carefully. So we're beginning to learn how to use the tools that we have on that end. So at some point, I would love to be able to say 100% of people who have a disease or who are well and are willing to share their experiences or are part of a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of a conversation I had with the CIO of a health system who had just implemented their EHR and basically, you know, sort of recognized like, gosh, this means that every day we're running a million experiments with all the data that we're collecting from every patient that walks through our doors, but we have no mechanism to do anything about that today. And you're absolutely describing an opportunity on the research side, but even in the day-to-day practice of medicine on the clinical side. And I think one of the challenges there is obviously the reimbursement model and how do you sort of incentivize folks to to do that in a systematic way. That strikes me that there's a very qualitative aspect of clearly by simply having these conversations, you're having a positive impact. Do you have specific metrics that you think about in terms of how do you measure the impact of the work that you do with patients? Well, it ends up, um, it's interesting that you would ask that because struggling with the metrics around, so what quotes good, what return do you get for asking X number of patients with a certain disease that you're about to build a clinical trial around? How do you measure the success for that? And sometimes it's a little obtuse, so you measure this, and then you calculate that, and you measure this again. But there are a few things that are very straightforward. So accrual rates, the number of amendments that you make to a protocol, like if you're just thinking operationally, a protocol 
amendment takes a lot of time, a lot of money, mm -hmm. and it basically suspends much of the work that you're doing for a period of time. What if the average, and I'm making the numbers up, but what if the average number of amendments on a protocol in a certain area is five over the course of a three-year trial? And you could reduce that to two. What does that translate to in terms of the amount of time that you're spending on the trial and therefore, and often, you know, how much money yeah. it is costing you to elongate that, to do the things that you do in an amendment? Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the measurements that we can actually apply. When you ask patients, what is the difference between the number of amendments in that trial versus when you've not asked? Mm -hmm. What happens when you include their endpoints? and whether or not you can actually reduce the number of visits, for example. So there are a number of things that seem like small wins right. when you talk about them at the front end, but they can have a, an outsized effect very at tangible. the back end yeah. and a very tangible, uh, measurable effect, mm -hmm. not just for the patients, but for the work that you're doing. So technology has allowed us to collect more data, and sometimes the industry is criticized for saying, more data is better data without being thoughtful about what is the data that we're actually capturing. So whether we talk about a randomized control trial where we're collecting data prospectively, or we talk about a retrospective analysis using electronic health record data or some other passively collected data source, putting your former chief medical officer hat on, can you help us understand how an evidence story is built and how one needs to be thoughtful about the questions that you ask, and sometimes more data can actually be harmful to the evidence story. Well, I think more is, you're right, more is not always better. I think of building the evidence, how you are going to collect it, like what form or format you get it in, what question you're intending to answer, what you'll do with the data, how you'll analyze it and when, all of it. And is, you know, what do you really need to know? And I think of everything in terms of risk and benefit, you know, where you sit is where you stand. And so I think about, you know, what good are we going to do for the patient? What harm might we do for the patient? And what questions need to be asked and answered in order to have the best possible information to make the decision as far, um, as close to the individualized story as you can get it. Right. And then once you know or believe you know those questions, then you can decide what the fit for purpose way of collecting the data is. So some of it might be a retrospective of what you can get from patients currently in the data that's available that would inform you what questions you're going to ask prospectively. So that will help you build your story. And I think that in many cases, our stories are well-built in that way. The challenge is, I think, understanding what the real fit for purpose is, you know, where the best data comes to answer the question that you've asked. If I think about what's happening in the industry now, the idea of data specialists, people whose lives are spent understanding how the best questions are asked, how the best answers are derived are now being, you know, they were sitting over here, you know, over to the left side in the corner with some interesting ideas. And the people who were doing the work on designing clinical trials, collecting the data from a clinical trial, collecting the data from an outcome, a health outcomes research institute, 
they were sitting on the other corner. Now they're sitting together at the table. And I think some really interesting and exciting things are happening. We see companies that are evolving, who are developing very specific expertise that's informing us and we're growing in this space. I think that our ears and eyes and arms are opening to these kinds of collaborations. I think that in the next even five years, we're going to see a revolution of kind of data acquisition analysis and utilization that will be transformative. And I think a lot of this will come from people who do this in space exploration or uh, non-medical, non-health environments who will have us scratching our heads about why and how what they do will apply to us, but it'll be incredible. And I think that's really going to be one of the most transformational things of the decade. You mentioned discovering new medicines, developing new medicines, and delivering new medicines. You know, one of the things that we see in pharmaceutical R&D is it's a very difficult funnel to progress and think about what are the medicines that you want to ultimately advance into the clinic to be studied in humans and then ultimately to seek drug approval. Help us understand why pharma keeps so many drugs on the shelf. There are many, many reasons. First of all, pharma and the entire industry has changed quite dramatically over the last couple of decades. There are university and academic partners. There are small startup companies. There are small, longstanding companies that have platforms. And so now the question is, what's the capacity and the focus of a company to be able to bring things forward? I think at the core of all of this is there's much more science than there is horsepower, if you would, money, people, and time to do everything. So many things end up in the basement or in the shelf, stranded somewhere, because we just can't do everything. And so they get put aside with all the best intent to come back to it at some point, and you don't. At the same time that science has advanced that way, there's some things that we just don't know. In my you know kind of area of expertise when I came into the industry, anxiety and affective disorders, what we knew then about the biology of those diseases and how things that we had shelved might have an effect on a subpopulation or a certain presentation or phase of a psychiatric disorder, now we know more. So we can go back to the shelf and say, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that, but there's new evidence that there's something meaningful that can happen for these patients with this disorder presenting this way at this time, and we actually have something we know a little bit about that we can do something with. So I think that many things are shelved for strategic reasons and capacity reasons, and for kind of this looks great, except I don't know what to do with it. It's a prioritization problem. Right. Right. Got it. But I think that we're beginning to apply systems to resurrecting those things liberating those things from their hiding places and then putting them to good use. And then I think development is taking on a new, kind of a new frame that it used to be everything is done in massive all-comer studies across many countries with all kinds of puts and takes in the clinical trials. We're beginning to learn that subpopulations with more elegant diagnostics, with more individualization around patient identification and selection is changing the framework. And in many cases, bringing those new technologies, new ideas, new processes 
to bear. Now we're learning to really encourage the power of what everyone in this system does. I call it all hands on deck. So we've stopped thinking, you know, well, what I did is a little bit better than what you did, and I know a little bit more than you do, and I'd rather do this by myself because, you know, this my special sauce. And we're learning now to go out and, you know, really find the best where it sits, collaborate around it, because what we want is speed and value to patients. So we entered the decade, the American Cancer Society reporting that cancer death rates declined by 29% from 1991 to 2017, which is exciting, including the largest single-year drop in history from 2016 to 2017. Despite this, there's two sobering truths. The first is cancer is still the second leading cause of death in this country. And two, access to these life-saving medicines are not evenly distributed. What's your take? Break this down for us. Well, first of all, I'm celebrating the good news about the reduction in cancer deaths. The challenge with it is that they are unequally distributed by a whole host of factors. Uh, You can look at geography or zip code, if you will. You can look at race, ethnicity, gender, and age. There are a whole host of things that, if you parse this data out, has some troubling areas in. I believe that both on the access on the literacy or the health education, health-seeking behavior screening, kind of that whole sector of things where people are responsible themselves for understanding what needs to happen and then making it happen. All of that remains in a pretty significant need of upping our game. And so I think that we have an opportunity to treat cancer with the knowledge and information that we have in a very unique way. This is probably one of the areas in medicine that we have incredible individualization capabilities so that if we could apply those equally, then we could learn why the death rates for Native Americans from prostate cancer remains disproportionately higher than it does for white males, that the same for African-American men, and that the characterization of their prostate cancer remains different and, frankly, not wholly understood because it's not been well studied, because, you know, you can just kind of go on and on and on. So I think we have a chance to build an agenda now that we have kind of successful therapeutics and diagnostics, that we have the capability to know things, we can build an agenda to understand how to equally distribute the wealth of preventive screening, early diagnostic, and treatment so that everybody gets that access. And not only do they have access to things, you know, because they're there, they have access to the information that tells them that what you should get and what someone else should get are different. And we have the mechanisms to know that, and we're going to tell you to make sure that you not only get the best in quotes, but the best for you. And I think cancer is our test ground. So I'm excited about it. But again, it's a place where our health disparities have all kinds of flashing lights and uh, signals in it for us. But I think we've got the tools and hopefully the will to close those gaps. That's it for BioEats World this week. 
BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with help from the A16Z bio team, Hannah Winarski, Andrew Stelzer, Justin Golden, and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more on how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.